Hey everyone, Meet Kevin here. Welcome back to another episode of the Meet Kevin Show. We are going back to our very first guest on the Meet Kevin podcast show on YouTube, Peter Schiff. We had a really exciting episode last time. Over 230,000 of y'all enjoyed it. And folks, we've got Peter Schiff coming back because last time we talked about GameStop crashing, GameStop crashed. We talked about the market crashing, the market crashed. We talked about Bitcoin crashing. Bitcoin started going down a little bit. We got some more talking to do with Peter Schiff. So I'm going to bring him on right now. Welcome aboard, Peter Schiff. What the heck is going on? Well, thanks, Kevin, for welcoming me back. And, you know, a lot is going on. And, you know, technically, the market does not look good. I mean, I, you know, it depends on what the Fed may do because they're the wild card, because they're the ones that could put a stop to the decline. But, you know, the markets had been ignoring the relentless, pretty much daily rise in long-term interest rates. And, you know, this despite the Fed's best efforts to restrain them, you know, the Fed is still doing quantitative easing. It, it, it continues to intervene in the market, buying long-term treasuries to suppress uh, the rates and to artificially prop up, you know, the economy, which is overly indebted. Uh, from everybody, the government on down, corporations, average Americans have a tremendous amount of debt. And so the Fed is, pro is trying to lighten the burden of servicing that debt by artificially suppressing rates, which, of course, has profound negative consequences for the, the economy. But that's a, a side note. But despite the Fed's efforts, the market has been raising interest rates at, anyway, and until recently, until the last, maybe until Thursday, um, the only people who seemed to know, notice were the gold traders, right? Because gold had been coming down based on the idea that a rise in rates was going to be negative for gold. And, but, you know, the other markets were ignoring the impact. And I think the stock market has a lot more to worry about from rising rates than, than gold does. And now I think people started to take notice. Uh, we had a big drop in the stock market, big drop in the NASDAQ. You know, these stocks, these tech stocks are particularly vulnerable to a rise in interest rates because these are growth stocks that are promising to uh, pay earnings in the future, right? They don't pay any dividends now because they're growing their businesses, but they're supposed to eventually uh, maybe pay some dividends at some point in the future. When interest rates are zero, well, it doesn't matter. You're willing to wait indefinitely because there's no opportunity cost of waiting. But as interest rates start to go up, uh, the cost of waiting for your money in the future also goes up. So that means that the valuations of those stocks come down and they have a long way to drop to get back to even a historic norm. So I think the technical picture looks very weak. I mean, we really broke down the last couple of days, uh, the last uh, you know hour to me looked very weak in the S&P and, 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 you know, in all the indexes. And, you know, unless the Fed comes in and really reassures the market that it's going to print a lot more money, which I think the market should be able to figure out anyway, because that's clearly what the Fed's going to do. But I think the markets are waiting for something more proactive to stop the, the decline. Otherwise, I think it's going to continue. Yeah, that that's a very good point of view that your opportunity cost right now is is next to nothing. So it's okay to pay more for these highly valued stocks, but hey, as interest rates go up, that that uh cost benefit analysis changes a little bit. But I I, I got to ask you, you know, this week we saw bond yields jump 
the Fed's not raising rates. People are just not buying bonds. And all of a sudden, the rates, yeah. the yields on these are going up. So how can the Fed bail us out of this? I mean, they, if, even if they just print more money, doesn't that just mean more treasuries at some point when the Treasury Department goes to inject some more money into the economy? You know, it, it all it seems like we're going to get stuck between a rock and a hard place here. Well, we are eventually. I mean, there's no way out of that. But what the Fed does is the Fed sets short-term interest rates. So it could pretty much peg those wherever they want. But the long-term rates, you know, for the 10-year treasury on out to the 30-year, they're determined in the market, right? And, and you have supply, which is all the treasuries that already exist. And then you have the new supply, which is coming to the market, which is all the new treasuries that the government is selling. You know, the House, I think, today voted or yesterday to pass this $1.9 trillion stimulus, right? All of that is paid for with debt. So the government has to issue, right, $2 trillion worth of new treasuries to borrow the money to pay for all the stimulus. So you have all this supply of treasuries on the market, and then you have the demand. Well, the demand is people that might want to loan money to the U.S. government by buying these treasuries. And I think the supply of willing lenders is drying up because more and more people realize that loaning money to the U.S. government for 10 years at 1.4% is a losing proposition because even the inflation that the government will admit to, which I think is still understating it, but the official CPI is higher than that. So people are not in the business of lending money to lose money. You make a loan because you want to get paid back more than you lend. Otherwise, what's the point of taking the risk of, of making the loan? Uh, so the government is running out of willing buyers. So what the Fed has done with quantitative easing is the Fed intervenes into the market and it buys up bonds that others don't to try to support the, the price, to keep bonds up and to keep rates down. And that's why the Fed's balance sheet is, what, $7.5 trillion now because they've had to buy all these bonds that nobody else wants. But what I think the Fed is going to do is really step up the pace of their bond buying to stop interest rates from rising. But the only way they can do that is to print more money, because that's where the Fed gets the money to buy the bonds. Printing more money is inflation. One of the main reasons that interest rates are rising is because people are getting more worried about inflation. And so they're demanding a higher rate of interest to compensate them for the loss of purchasing power of their money due to inflation. So as the Fed inflates the money supply to suppress interest rates and buy more bonds, they create more of the very thing that is causing people to want to get out of bonds. So ultimately right. what happens is the Fed chases everybody out of the market and the Fed isn't the buyer of last resort. The Fed is the buyer of only resort. And the Fed is just an engine of inflation monetizing government debt. And this is a recipe for disaster. We could have a crash in the dollar, which is much worse than a crash in the stock market or bond market, because that's going to take our entire standard of living down with it. Jeez. So, you know, that, that's interesting. I mean, do you think this could be a one-off, this, this rally in treasury yields, which led the stock market to sell off because of this $1.9 trillion stimulus package? Is, is that just being priced in that, okay, we're going to get a whole new round of bonds. Uh, let's wait before we buy bonds. Yields go up. Let the Fed and the Treasury do their thing. Let them do their money printing and their bond buying. But but that's it. It's a one-off. Uh, the stock market's just going to the moon after this again. Well, it's not a one-off thing because the government has to finance the deficits every single year. So there is a you know a tidal wave of supply 
down the pike. And I don't think this 1.9 stimulus bill is going to work. I think when the money is spent, we're going to have another stimulus. I mean, I just think it's just like wow. a drug habit. And, you know, you, you take some drugs and then you're high for a while and the drugs start to wear off and then, you know, you need another fix. So I think we're going to have a string of stimulus bills uh, that are going to continue. They probably get bigger and bigger, but we already have the, this massive deficit that needs to be financed. The Social Security deficit is exploding because, you know, a lot fewer people now are working. And so the people who aren't working aren't paying Social Security taxes. But you have all these people collecting benefits. More and more people are retiring early. So this is a huge drain on the budget. You know, Social Security used to be in a surplus. Now it's in a huge deficit, getting bigger and bigger every day. So the Social Security, uh, quote unquote, trust funds, they're also unloading treasuries to bridge the gap between what they collect in payroll taxes and what they're spending in benefits. Uh, and then, you know, what people forget is that there's all these treasuries out there that we sold, right, in the past. We have a $27 trillion national debt, but a lot of those bonds mature, right? People bought them years ago and now they mature. Well, they don't want to roll them over. They, and so now the U.S. government, not only do we have to fund this year's deficit, but we have to refund prior year's deficits. We have to find new buyers for the people who bought bonds years ago, and now we have to pay them back. Well, where do we get the money to pay them back? Well, we got to find new buyers, new new lenders to do that. So it's a gigantic Ponzi scheme that the U.S. government is operating in its own debt. And so all these chickens are coming home to roost. So this is massive supply that's going to hit the market. And if you think about it, the U.S. government today has more debt than it's ever had in the history of the country. And, you know, anybody knows, right? You're, you know, you do a borrowing, you know, in, in, in real estate or as you have more debt, you become a worse credit risk, right? The more debt you have, sure. the harder it is to repay. And so because America has more debt than we've ever had, does it make sense that we have the lowest interest rates that we've ever had? I mean, how can we be a better credit risk today when we have $27 trillion worth of debt than we were when we just had $1 trillion. You know, and we didn't even get to $1 trillion until the Reagan presidency. But how can we be a better credit risk now than we were then? It's obviously impossible. Now, do you believe then that, because there's so much talk about the Fed is going to taper bonds, and then after they taper bond purchases, they're going to raise rates. The expectation is that that could happen sooner than expected. Fed says, don't worry, not happening until 2024. A lot of folks say, no, it's going to happen sooner. It sounds like you actually think they're going to go in the opposite direction. They're going to print more bonds. And could we even see negative yields? Oh, yeah. Look, you go back to the beginning, you know, when the Fed first started BSing everybody that it was going to shrink its balance sheet and normalize interest rates. Years ago, this is under Bernanke. I was out there on my podcast uh, and on you know whatever news network would invite me on, and I was saying that this was a lie, that it was impossible, that there was no way the Fed was going to uh, normalize rates, that they would never bring them back to normal, that the economy couldn't afford a normal rate of interest with an abnormally high amount of debt. And I said that the mm -hmm. Fed ever tried to shrink the balance sheet before it got anywhere near back down to where it was before they started, they would have to reverse course. And, and that's exactly what they did. I was proven right. All the people that thought the Fed was going to do that were wrong. Uh, we're back at zero, just like I said we would be. 
and we've got a seven and a half trillion dollar balance sheet. The highest it got before they started tapering was four and a half trillion. Now, when the Fed really tried to normalize rates and 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 taper, right? We had that taper tantrum, and the markets fell apart in the fourth quarter of 2018. We had the worst December since the Great Depression in the 1930s. The wheels were coming off the bus, and the Fed quickly put a stop to that. No more rate hikes, you know, no more tapering. And then when we got March of last year, when the COVID scare began, we were right back at zero and we went to QE infinity. So the Fed is not going to be any more successful in trying to, you know, taper this time or or raise rates than it was last time. In fact, it will it will be less successful because today we have a lot more debt than we had in 2018. So if the Fed could normalize interest rates when we had a lot less debt than we have now, how are they going to do it now? Because the more debt we have, the harder it is to raise rates, the more dependent the economy is on those artificially low rates. So the markets still haven't come to terms with this, that the Fed could talk all they want, but it's all bark and no bite when it comes to any kind of rate hikes or tapering. They are going to be, you know, they can't cut, right? Because they're at zero, unless they're going to go negative, right? They can't cut. So all they can do is print. And I think that's what they're doing. They're going to print more and more money uh, until the dollar crashes. That's going to be the only thing that brings an end to this, right, is when we have a currency crisis. Because every other crisis, they can kind of kick the can down the road by printing more dollars. But when we have a dollar crisis, we can't print our way out of a dollar crisis. Because if you try to do that, you just make the crisis worse. So the, the oh, I mean, this is this is so fascinating because, I mean, everyone is talking about the Fed. They're going to raise rates sooner than expected. They're going to stop their bond purchases. You know, you've got Kathy well, how, Wood and Art going. That? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, because you're right. I mean, I remember the summer of 2018. That's when they were really bumping uh, rates more aggressively. Uh, Jerome was, uh, I think, a couple rate hikes just at the beginning of the year there. And uh, real estate sold off like 12% like this. The stock market followed in December, like you mentioned. They, they weren't able to do anything. Uh, uh, with, with it, raising rates. And they keep talking about the strong economy. They say, well, you know, we have the strong yeah. economy, so they're going to raise rates. We don't. We have a bubble economy because rates are low. Yeah. If they try to raise yeah. rates, they'll prick the bubble. Look, it is not a strong economy when people spend money that the government prints and then mails them. That's what's happening. Like, if you look at the the personal income numbers that came out on Friday, this big jump, 10%. Oh, we've got a strong economy. Where did that money come from? Welfare payments, unemployment payments. You know, if you take out these government transfer payments, personal income actually dropped. So if all of the gains of income are coming from government printing money and giving it to people to spend, that is not a strong economy. A strong economy is where people are working productively and they earn their income by producing goods and services, not sitting at home, you know, on Netflix, uh, cashing government checks. That's not a strong economy. And if you look at our trade numbers, our trade deficit is exploding. That you look at these photographs of all these uh, container ships, you know, backed up for miles, you know, trying to unload stuff, and then all the ships go back empty to bring back more stuff to bring here because we got nothing to ship because we're not making stuff. We're just borrowing money to to consume what everybody else makes. But all of this is because of the cheap money. It's all because of government spending. Where's the government getting money to spend from the Fed? And if the Fed let interest rates go up, 
Look at the amount of interest that the U.S. government is paying on the national debt. Even though we have a record high debt, we're barely paying any interest. Well, if the Fed lets interest rates go up, the government does. Where's the government going to get money to pay the higher interest? It's like, you know, the individual has a teaser rate on a home mortgage and he can barely afford the teaser rate. And then the rate goes up. Now, what is he going to do? You know, how long? So, how long though is the Fed locking these in for? I mean, if if they're uh, aren't they locking? Oh these no, in, the average know, five, maturity ten, on the. Oh no, I don't know. It's a few years, but you know, every hmm. every month stuff is maturing, right? I mean, the there's so much. Uh, maybe hmm. over the next year, maybe ten trillion hmm. is going to have to be refinanced. I mean, hmm. could you imagine that if you had your mortgage for a house instead of having a thirty year hmm. fixed, right? You had a balloon payment every few years. You had to refinance the whole thing. I mean, how could you right. even sleep at night? You don't know what the interest rates are going to be. Can you find a lender? You know, but the reason the U.S. government doesn't try to finance the debt by actually selling all long-term bonds is because if they did that, they would push up the interest rates, and they they can't afford it. So it's like it's like somebody who's buying a house. They don't want a thirty-year fixed-rate mortgage because they can't afford that one. So they take a one-year adjustable because that's all they can afford. But the problem is, what happens if the rate goes up? They, they own a house that they can't afford the payments. I mean, the U.S. government is gambling with, with the taxpayer by, by putting them on the hook for what could happen if interest rates go up. And I hear this all the time where people say, hey, the U.S. government should take advantage of these low rates. We should borrow a lot mm -hmm. of money now for infrastructure or other programs because, you know, we have these low rates. But the government's not locking in those low rates. That's the problem. It's borrowing now, yeah. but it's not locking in the rates. It's what would happen? What if interest rates went up to 10%? Right? Ten, sure. I mean, they went up to 20% when Volcker was president. I mean, was president of the Federal Reserve when Reagan was president. What if they went up to 10%? I mean, if the national debt goes up to uh, 30 trillion, which it will probably be, you know, this year, 10% um, of that is $3 trillion. I mean, that's more Chase. than the government, that's more than the government collects in income taxes right now. I mean, that's almost I mean, as so much is the government collects in total taxes. I mean, really, it's it's the issue becomes this this constant rollover, which is maybe why they never did this 100 year treasury bond that there was talk about. Well, I'd like to see the idiot. Who, yeah, I'd like to see the idiot who wants to buy that. <laughs> right. I mean, first of all, uh, why, so, are why are you going to loan? Why are you going to loan somebody money for 100 years? I mean, you're, who's going to live yeah. for 100 years? I mean, who's I mean, what's the point of making a loan? That is not going to be repaid until after I'm dead. I mean, I, I, I mean, it's, so the whole thing is laughable that somebody would even want a hundred year bond. But what? Uh, uh, what was the rate going to be? Two percent, three percent? I mean, I don't even know if there's going to be a dollar in a hundred years. Jeez. You know, so so is this the California, like the Californiaification, if I could say that, of of the United States? Are are we becoming sort of a a dependent country on these constant injections of, of stimulus, like you had mentioned. It's in California, you, you've got a lot, you know, what, what is it? I think 35% of folks on Medi-Cal because they, they, you know, can't afford Medicaid or uh, uh, medical insurance out here. It, are we going to keep seeing more and more of these programs, potentially under the Biden administration, where we just keep these yeah. transfer payments coming and keep the support coming and the well, Fed's I'm just going to keep going and going and going? Is it, is it really just going to keep going? Well, until until there's a dollar crash, I mean, the, the, these the welfare payments are only as good as the dollars that you're getting paid. So once the money doesn't have any value, then it doesn't do anybody any good. But in the short run, the Democrats have a very powerful incentive to impoverish people and to make them dependent on government checks. 
because that's how they buy their votes. The minute you could take somebody who you know is viable and, and self-sufficient and cripple them to the point where the only way they think they can survive is if they get government money, then those people are going to vote for whoever's promising to continue providing that money. So that's that's what the Democrats want to do. They want to create dependency uh, so that they have a vote, right? Um, in theory, what the Republicans want to do is they want to liberate people so they don't need government. <laughs> you know, but then if, mm -hmm. if you don't need government, then you're not as incentivized to vote for government. Right. When people are saying, hey, vote for me and I'll leave you alone. You know, I mean, that's what I want to hear. Uh, but a lot of people, you know, that doesn't really sell. If it's vote for me and I'll give you a bunch of money that you didn't earn and I'll take it from some other person. Yeah, that's who I that's who a lot of people want to vote for. You know, and that was that was, you know, how Biden won. You know, by by promising uh, to get to give away free stuff, and uh, you know, so now he wants to make good on those promises. The dollar crash. Other than you know these these declines in the dollar that we've obviously recently seen, what what other catalysts do you look for for a dollar crash, and and what does the economy look like when that crash occurs? Do we go to Bitcoin? What what happens? Well, I don't think we'll go to Bitcoin, but I mean, right now, people still believe that the Fed will raise rates. And if you hear, you know, uh, Powell's like his, his testimony, he just testified on Capitol Hill that he's not worried about inflation, that everything is fine. In right. fact, the Fed is determined to achieve their goal of 2% inflation, which is a ridiculous goal. I mean, if inflation is 1%, it's better to have it go down to zero than to go up to two. There's nothing magical about a rising cost of living that should be a goal that we should strive for. But mm -hmm. Powell said that he thinks that despite you know their best efforts, or they're giving it a really valiant uh, college try, uh, they're hoping that they'll get the inflation rate up to two percent in three years. That's their goal. Right. I mean, which I think they're already way past two. But but then mm -hmm. he said, "Look, you know, the Fed doesn't. You know, we don't have. You know, we don't always get it right, which is putting it mildly. They pretty much always get it wrong. They have a very bad track record." But Powell said, if on the rare chance we're wrong, right, and inflation actually gets to be higher than we thought, he said, well, we have tools to deal with that. They right. may have the tools, but there's no way they're going to use them <laughs> because the Fed is not going to raise rates while we have high unemployment because it'll, you know, right. they, they're going to, I mean, you know, they're not going to do that. So it's a bluff that the Fed is going to use these tools if uh, you know the, the, their, their situation arises. But right now, what's supporting the dollar is the belief that the Fed will hike rates if inflation becomes a problem, that the Fed will protect the value of the dollar, even if it means a massive collapse in the stock market, a massive collapse in the real estate market, a huge recession, lots of unemployment with no government stimulus. Because remember, if the Fed is raising rates to fight inflation. And if we're in recession at the same time, there could be no government help, right? Because the Keynesian remedy to fighting recession is run big deficits, lower interest rates, print more money. Well, if you're fighting inflation, which is the opposite, shrinking the money supply and raising interest rates, you can't do both of those things at the same time because they're the opposite. So what the Federal Reserve would have to do to stop inflation from running out of control is, you know, raise rates and allow the recession to run its course with no government help, no stimulus, no bailouts. I mean, what's the odds of that happening? I mean, zero. 
so Golly. The, that when the market figures out that the Fed is not going to stop inflation, that the Fed is going to fuel inflation, instead of raising rates to fight inflation, it's going to create more inflation to prevent inflation from raising interest rates. So when the markets figure that out, then the bottom drops out of the dollar. Then we have a dollar crisis. And then, only then, may the Fed be forced uh, to do the right thing because they'll have no choice. Now, how much is technology potentially going to bail us out of this, given the deflationary nature of technology? Is it possible that we're just going to deflate faster than we might inflate? And who knows, maybe we keep money printing for the next decade. Well, you know, first of all, remember, inflation is a monetary phenomenon, and so is deflation. Mm -hmm. So inflation is money supply going up. Deflation is money supply going down. Now, apart from inflation and deflation, you have the overall uh, supply and demand for goods. And technology helps increase the supply of goods because it makes the production of goods less expensive. We can produce more stuff for less units of input, less labor, uh, less raw materials, less capital. So we get more abundant stuff and that helps keep the price of stuff down. That's progress. That's capitalism. That's a good thing. That's what happens. Now, when the government comes in and creates inflation, uh, it's harder to see the decline in prices uh, that is a natural result of a, of a free market economy. And, and so I think technology will continue uh, to bring down production costs, but not nearly enough to offset the uh, destruction of the value of the dollar and other costs that are going to be going up, raw material costs, labor costs. Remember, as the dollar goes down, you know, all these... Uh, costs go way up because, you know, a lot of uh, American companies, right, they have outsourced uh, to foreign foreign workers to keep their labor costs down. Well, when the dollar goes down, all those foreign workers become much more expensive to employ. And all the materials, all the raw materials. I mean, look at oil. Oil last week got up to almost $64 a barrel. Uh, it pulled back a little bit. Yesterday dropped a couple of bucks. We're now just below 62 but we are moving higher. I think oil could be $100 a barrel before the end of the year. And, you know, we're not producing nearly as much oil now as we did back in 2014, which I think was the last time uh, oil was that expensive. And so we're more dependent than ever on importing oil. And when it gets a lot more expensive, I mean, that's going to run up the cost of all sorts of things. Uh, so, no, I don't think that we're going to get bailed out from technology. I mean, what really saved us in the past was uh outsourcing all of our manufacturing to places like China. And so that helped, helped keep a lid on prices because if we had to make all that stuff ourselves, it would cost a hell of a lot more. So we've been able to mitigate the effects of inflation uh, by outsourcing. But the consequence of that has been these massive trade deficits and our external debt has ballooned. So we're, we're a massive debtor nation now. I mean, we used to be a creditor nation. We used to be the world's biggest creditor nation. Now we're the world's biggest debtor nation because we've borrowed so much money to live beyond our means. But I think the ability to do that is coming to an end because we've already outsourced so much. And now when the dollar tanks, now the, the, the cost of bringing all that stuff back home is going to go way up. So no, I don't think there's going to be any way that we're going to be able to dodge this bullet. Wow. Uh, and, and how long until you think this comes? Because it just, I mean, forgive me, but it just seems like the Fed has a knack for keeping this going over yeah. and over and over again. I mean, ever they, since what Greenspan, it just seems like it's just constantly like, and like, 
I, I think you keep going. <laughs> yeah, look, you know, you, you, you can keep doing it until you can't. I mean, eventually the dollar is going to have to break. And, be, you know, each time they have to revive the economy, it requires a bigger and bigger dose of this monetary heroin. And so every mm -hmm. time you increase the size of the dose, you know, that could be the fatal one. And I mean, think about how enormous it is now. I mean, if things starts to fall apart, I mean, look how much they had to do with COVID. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and now if, the, if, if, if this even bigger bubble starts to deflate, I mean, look at how much money Americans now, if you look at the unemployment rate, and even Powell will admit that if you back out, you know, a lot of these numbers, Powell thinks the real unemployment rate is over 10%. Uh, and which is higher than it was or as high as it was at the worst point of the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, which was the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. And so we now have the same amount of unemployment as we had then. But look at Americans are spending money like crazy. I mean, we're spending a lot more, even though we're not working and not producing. So, I mean, it's, this is all a bubble. And I mean, you see what's going on in, 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 in the real estate market. But look at the prices. Look at the price of lumber. Lumber hit an all-time record high. Look at the price of copper this week. Copper got up to about $4.35 uh, a pound. The highest it ever was was $4.5. I think that was back in 2011. Um, but we're going um, to take that out. But, I mean, I mean, all these prices are just soaring, and people are still massively unemployed. And a lot of people haven't even spent a lot of the stimulus money yet. A lot of that stimulus money is still in people's pockets. They haven't even spent it, but they're going to. And now before they now, can even spend that, there's another check that's arriving in the mail. I uh, I hear there might be a good chunk of the next stimulus payment uh, going into uh, your favorite hedge, Bitcoin. Can you speak to, uh, you know, if, if you distrust what's going on in the government and what's going on at the Fed, which, which we know is technically independent of the government, uh, why, why not Bitcoin? Well, you know, there's no doubt that some of these younger uh, uh, Bitcoiners will take some of that stimulus money and just buy more Bitcoin with it. I've got no doubt that they'll do that. And, you know, I think that there are some people who are buying Bitcoin because they don't trust the Federal Reserve. They don't trust the dollar and uh, they'd rather own Bitcoin instead. But I think the greatest appeal of Bitcoin is the belief that it's going to moon. And that you're going to get rich by buying it. I mean, people are not buying Bitcoin to preserve the wealth that they have. People are buying Bitcoin because they think in doing it, they're going to get rich. And they think everybody else is going to be poor. Right. I, I get all these uh, uh, texts from people, you know, have fun staying poor, you know, because I don't have any Bitcoin. Um, so people think they're going to get rich quick and get rich easy just by, by buying Bitcoin. But, you know, it's not it's not that easy to get rich, but it's very easy to go broke. And I think one way to go broke is putting all your money in Bitcoin. Um, you know, for the people that are only putting a little bit of money in, you know, the way they would put a little bit of money in when they buy a lottery ticket, you know, I, I guess okay. I can't, you know, you want to do that for fun. Uh, but putting serious money into it, uh, I think is a big mistake because I don't think it is going to ever succeed uh, in delivering what it's promising, which is to be money to be either a store of value or a medium of exchange or a unit of account. I think it fails in, in the ability to do any of those things. Um, people say, well, look, it's a store of value because look at how the price has gone up. No, just because the price of something goes up 
doesn't mean it stored any value. It didn't have any value to store. It has a price. Yeah, I mean, you know, anything could have a price, you know, as long as somebody is willing to pay it. But there's a difference between value and price. That's how come something can be overpriced, right? If you can objectively define a value and then you can look at the market price, that's how as an investor, when I'm looking around at stocks and I try to determine, hey, what's this business worth? And then you look at the price. And if it's expensive, well, I don't want to buy it. But if I find, you know, a dollar's worth of assets that I, you know, are value and I can buy it for 50 cents because the market doesn't understand it, then that's an opportunity. Hey, I got something that's underpriced. Well, I think Bitcoin's real value is zero. And so any price is overpriced. So now at, you know, $47,000 or whatever it is, uh, you know, that it's all, it's all, you know, nothing. But that's the price that people want to pay. But if I'm right, eventually people won't want Bitcoin at any price. I mean, if you could knock, you know, take it down to 20,000, 10,000, 5,000. I think when the, the appeal is lost, when people realize it's not going to be money and it's never been money, um, then what good is it? Right? It doesn't, you can't I mean, do anything with you're your basically, Bitcoin. You're, you're essentially saying, to be blunt, that it's worthless and it there's a real possibility it could go to zero when people realize it's worthless isn't it possible though that people want to invest in in blockchain and uh, this is an yeah, opportunity to do that i don't see how bitcoin is blockchain just because i buy a bitcoin and you know blockchain i mean blockchain is a tool that companies could use i mean there's all sorts of ways that people can use a blockchain but just because I own Bitcoin doesn't mean I own anybody's uh, blockchain. You know, just the other day, MasterCard came out. You know, there were some rumors, you know, oh, MasterCard is going to incorporate Bitcoin. And I was like, oh, there's no way they're going to do that. And then they just came out Friday and said, yeah, you know, we're not going to do it. They made a big deal about saying we're thinking about it. Uh, but they said, you know, we can't use it because it's too volatile. Uh, you know, you can't and it's too expensive. So we, it doesn't make any sense as a payment. And they and they had an example. They said, look, nobody's going to use it to buy a cup of coffee, which is true. But you know who could create a digital currency if they wanted to? Starbucks. I mean, Starbucks could launch. Okay. Starbucks could launch its own currency, which it will accept at its any of its restaurants for uh, a regular cup of coffee. Right. I have to have or maybe a, a, a latte or they'd have to say this. This particular Starbucks. Right. Is good for. Yeah you know, one regular cup of coffee at any of our restaurants. And they could make use a, a digital currency and and that, and that would be a Starbucks. Now, anybody can go into Starbucks and use that Starbucks and buy a cup of coffee. Now, it would be a much better digital currency than Bitcoin because assuming Starbucks doesn't go bankrupt because, you know, it's like a note, right? It's a, it's a, it's a note from yeah. Starbucks. Like but they're going to give you a cup of coffee, but it's an inflation hedge. Because if you hold on to that and you go in there in a few years and they've raised the price of a cup of coffee, you can still buy a cup of coffee with a st the one Starbucks because it's good for a cup of coffee. So I could use it as a medium of exchange. I mean, as a store of value, but I can also use right. it as money. I could give it to somebody else because they know that they could take it to Starbucks and get a cup of coffee. And I can even give it to somebody who doesn't drink coffee because they know that, well, somebody drinks coffee. And so if I want to buy something... I could use this Starbucks. And so that would be real currency backed by a cup of coffee. McDonald's could do the mm -hmm. same thing backed by a hamburger. 
know, any private company can issue a digital currency backed by the goods and services that it sells. And obviously, the, the guarantee or the, the store of value is only as good as the company, right? Because if McDonald's goes bankrupt, then all my McDonald's bucks are worthless. You know, my McBucks right. or if, if, if Starbucks goes bankrupt. But obviously, you have big, solid companies that people don't think are going to go bankrupt. People will have confidence. Right. So some fly-by-night, you know, um, uh, coffee shop tries to issue a digital currency. I, I'm not going to want that. I mean, who the hell knows who you are? But if Starbucks wants to issue a digital currency backed by coffee, sure, I know Starbucks. I'll trust that. You know, because that's what everybody used to do. Banks used to issue paper currency backed by gold. Now, of course, the best thing is a digital currency backed by gold because gold, there's a, there's a, there's a price, a historical price between gold and coffee, right? I mean, if the price of coffee goes up, the price of gold is going to go up, right? So if I, I want to hedge my coffee, I, I don't necessarily have to store a bunch of coffee, I can store some gold and I can you know, buy coffee with my gold or I can sell my gold at a higher price to buy the higher price coffee. But the problem with Bitcoin is it doesn't, you know, it doesn't satisfy any of those conditions because Bitcoin is nothing. I can't, I can't use the Bitcoin just like I can drink a cup of coffee. I can eat a hamburger. I can take gold and I can make it into a ring. Here's a, I'm wearing a ring here. It's made of gold. Yeah. Uh, so I can, I, can, you know, I can make my gold into a ring. Uh, or I can do all sorts of things. I mean, we're talking to each other with computers. There's gold in the chips. You know, I mean, you know, gold is used in all sorts of things, even if you don't use it yourself. I mean, I, it just frustrates me all the time when I hear all these Bitcoin people talking about how gold is useless, how it's worthless. I mean, they got it backwards. Yeah. It's Bitcoin that's useless and worthless. Gold is very valuable. That's why it became money in the first place. If it was useless and valueless, then nobody would have wanted it as money. So really, what you've just described is very fascinating because you've you've linked the value of something to being pegged to something else, whether it's the dollar being pegged to the full full faith and credit of the United States, the uh, Starbucks linked to the value of a don't sue me bro cup of coffee or whatever. Uh, so, and, and that's where you're also suggesting, hey, if we had a digital currency that's pegged to gold, great. So I, I guess- Well, but the, Kevin, the let me I'll make a becomes, point here. here. See, that's yeah. the difference between, between money and currency. Let's say we were going to use coffee as money, right? Coffee is our yeah. money. That's the commodity. Yeah. But a digital currency backed by coffee, see, the, cur the, the currency is a coffee substitute. Because for me and you to start paying each other, oh, that's five cups of coffee. That's four and a half cups of coffee. I mean, that's, that's cumbersome. But if we, have a, if we have a digital currency that's backed by the coffee, that's easier to use. See, that's what happened with gold. I had my gold. And I'd have somebody store it and they would give me notes. And then instead of, you know, lugging my gold around, if I wanted to buy something, I would say, hey, I own some gold. Here's proof of it. And I'm going to I'm going to give you this note. So now you own the gold. It's stored with this blacksmith that we all trust, which later became right. a bank. So money doesn't have to be backed by anything because money is a commodity. Mm -hmm. And what backs money is the tangible use of the commodity. So if you know, salt was money. The Romans paid their soldiers in salt. That's where the word salary comes from. Well, why was salt money? Because people put salt on their food. They use salt to, to keep their meat uh, fresh. So there was a use for salt. But let's say okay. I wasn't using salt, but I had salt in a big vault. And then I issued pieces of paper that were redeemable in salt. Those pieces of paper would be currency. They would be legitimate currency because they were backed by salt. Now, what we have today, which is fiat currency, is fiat currency backed by nothing. 
So money is a commodity like gold, which, which can function as a medium of exchange and as unit of account and a store of value. Currency can, it can substitute for money because it's more convenient to use, but it derives its value from the money that backs it up. Fiat currency has no value, is backed by nothing, and it's only worth whatever what people think it's worth. It's all based on confidence. That's Bitcoin. The difference between fiat currency and, and Bitcoin is that the dollar with fiat currency is issued by the government and it's legal tender. And Bitcoin is you know just mined by all these miners and it's not legal tender. But the value still comes from confidence and faith. People have to think it has value. And if they think it has mm. value, maybe they'll buy it. But if they no longer think right. it has value, they won't buy it. Gold's value has nothing to do with what I think. Gold's value is is objective and tangible, right? You, you, there's things that you can do with gold, and you can't deny that. So, if if money is is backed uh, by by value, like in your salt example, we like this money because of uh, its value in redeemable salt. Then, in some sense, wouldn't the United States dollar be potentially a better investment than Bitcoin because at least you have the government putting their faith in that dollar. Yeah, I mean, I think the chances of Bitcoin going to zero are greater than the chances of the dollar going to zero, at least in, in mm -hmm. the near term. I think, it, you know, okay. over the course of time, eventually the yeah. dollar will go to zero too. I mean, there hasn't been a fiat currency Jeez. that hasn't gone to zero. So, I mean, it, it will. But I think, you know, I, 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 there's, there's, a, there's a lot at stake for the government to eventually prevent the dollar from going to zero, but it can lose 90% of its value. So it'll feel like it's worthless, uh, but we may still use it. Although it's possible that the old dollar could go out and we could have a new dollar. But another way for people to understand money is to understand that money just made barter more efficient, right? Because human beings mm -hmm. always traded with one another. And before money was invented, you traded what you had for what you wanted. Right. So if if I was a butcher and I had some meat and I wanted, uh, you know, uh, uh, a, uh, a candle. Right. I had I can't I had to find a candlestick maker that wanted my meat. Right. And we had to figure out how much meat is equal to that candlestick. And then we would make a trade. Right. And but, you know, maybe I, maybe the candlestick maker maker is a vegetarian. He doesn't want my meat. Shit. I can't get I got to find a. I, you know, I, I got to find a different candlestick maker. He doesn't want my meat. Sure. So it was, it was yeah. not very convenient. So when, when, when mankind came up with money, it was, hey, what's one good that we can all accept that we don't, so we don't have to, you know, barter. And gold was the ideal commodity because you, gold is a real good, just like meat, just like a candlestick. A gold is another commodity. But instead of trying to figure out how much meat is equal to one candlestick? We'll just have everything priced in gold. How much? How much gold do I need for a candlestick? How much gold do I need uh, for meat? You know, and for the baker, how much gold do I need for bread? And so now the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker—they're not, you know, trading around in in bread and, and candlesticks. They pay each other in gold, and there's an, a, there's a way to price everything and tie it into gold. But that's because gold is also a commodity. And so its value, its use can relate to the bread or the, 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 the meat or the candlestick. But Bitcoin, sure. Bitcoin is used for nothing. There's no way to know how much Bitcoin should 
be a loaf of bread be worth because there's no it doesn't have any value. There's this it's so it's not a good in and of itself. Gold was a real good. Mm -hmm. Now what you could say is, hey, instead of just everybody uh, paying each other in gold, let's take the gold, put it in a safe somewhere. And we're all going to use these pieces of paper that are backed by that gold in that safe. We all know the gold is there. Anybody can get it when they want. But in the meantime, we'll just use this piece of paper that represents that gold. Right. Now, because we can't do that with like, the meat because the meat could rot. Sure. Yeah. I, I see the, the crux of the argument here uh, as, as uh, really the store of value uh, in gold. But, I, you know, what confuses me is, isn't it possible that the greater likelihood is that the bull run continues, that the government prints this money, jump starts the United States economic engine, unemployment goes back to you know three, four percent. We have a massive boom in this decade, especially once our economy fully reopens. Uh, and and really, we we just see everything continue to to go up. We don't see inflation because of uh, you know the technological forces we talked about. And isn't there a greater chance of a big bull run here throughout the next 10 years? Well, first of all, there's no engine to restart. I mean, the engine is dead. We haven't been running on a real engine uh, in decades. We're running on inflation. That's the problem. And yes, can the government keep printing money? Yes, of course. That's the one thing they can do. That's why I'm not short the stock market. I haven't been short the stock market, you know, because I know that the government can keep blowing more air into this bubble by inflating. But this is not economic growth. All the government can do to delay the day of reckoning is to make the problem bigger. Will they try? Of course, that's all they want to do. They, they just want to push off the consequences until the next election, because then it, maybe it's going to be somebody else's problem. So, yes, they are going to keep doing that. They're going to print more money. That's my point. So the stock market will make a new high even after it falls. It depends on how much the market's going to fall before the Fed rescues it. It's like a game of chicken, right? The market keeps going down and the Fed pretends it doesn't care until eventually it proves that it cares by giving the addicts on Wall Street what they crave, which is a big fix of monetary heroin. So, yeah, we're going to keep on getting a higher stock price. I think I think stocks will be overvalued. But the dollar is going to crash. That's what's going to ultimately give is going to be the dollar. And look, the price of gold is going to keep rising. It got to 2150 I think, last year. That was an all-time record high. So now we've actually pulled back. We've almost gone into a you know full 20% decline. I think it's down about 17%, down about 9% on the year. We're 1,700 and change. But 2150 is not the high. Gold's going much, much higher. I mean, because the dollar is going much, much lower. When we first went off the gold standard, really, gold was $35 an ounce. You know, I mean, it was $20 an ounce in 1932. And then uh, who, uh, Roosevelt devalued. But gold price stayed stable at $35 an ounce from, you know, 1932 until about 1970. You know, and then we went off the gold standard and went from $35 to 2150 Now, that is not over. Gold did not stop going up. Because they did not, they're, they're not going to stop debasing the dollar. So yeah, I, you know, I, I just think it's going to end in a crisis. You know, we've been able to avoid mm -hmm. the crisis, but at the expense of making the problem much, much worse. So the 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 the, the reason for adopting a defensive investment strategy, which is the one that I espouse and the one that I follow myself, which is have some gold, but invest most of your money outside the United States so you can get out of the U.S. dollar. You want to own good quality stocks 
that are, you know, you, where you're getting good value for your money, uh, but you want to own them outside the United States in countries that are not a complete economic basket case, really like the United States. And you want to be able to earn, have com com companies that will pay you in dividends that are not going to be in currencies that are going to collapse in value. You want to get dividends that you can actually use to buy things. And so that is a much better hedge against inflation, owning quality dividend paying stocks outside the United States and then having some real money uh, in gold and silver. That's much better than just gambling on uh, a digital string of, of numbers. Isn't uh, I mean, isn't there more currency risk outside of the United States than in the United States? I mean, uh, you know, look at look at the issues we've got in, for example, Greece or, or Europe with the EU or I mean, worse, go to the flip side and go to like, uh, uh, you know, uh, Venezuela. You know, aren't you exposing yourself to more risk in other areas well, of the world than well, trusting in the dollar? Well, first of all, we don't have any money in Venezuela, so that's not a risk that I'm I'm taking. But, um, so you've been yeah, choosing, I mean, okay. <laughs> but look, we do have some euros and Greece is part of the Eurozone. And yep. yeah, I, I definitely see some risks in the Euro. Um, mm -hmm. That's why, you know, we're not all in the Euro. I mean, we have some exposure to the Euro, but you know, there are other countries that are in much, much better shape than Europe and the United States. I think when it comes right mm -hmm. down to it, Europe has problems. The U.S. has an even bigger problem. That's how that's wow. how screwed up we are, that we're even more screwed up than Europe. So I think our risks, our currency risks are worse. I think our risks are worse than Japan. I mean, there are other countries wow. that have run up big debts, but I think America is the most vulnerable. So there's risk in every currency that you own. Now, a lot of Americans don't think about risk in the dollar because they don't see any fluctuations in the dollar because they're comparing it to the dollar. So the dollar will always be worth a dollar. Right. That's not the case for the Swiss franc or the, uh, the the Australian dollar. Right. They're going to fluctuate every day. But even though a dollar will always be worth a dollar, what's a dollar going to be worth in terms of what it will buy you? And so if you think about not just currency risk, but purchasing power risk, that's how you want to look at it. If I store dollars, how much purchasing power am I likely to lose over time? versus storing Swiss francs or, you know, New Zealand dollars or a Swedish kroner or any one of these other currencies, which currency is going to lose less value over time? I think the dollar is more risky. I think the least risk is gold, right? I think gold will do a better job over time, not on a daily basis, but over longer periods of times, years, decades, gold is going to preserve much more of your buying power. As I said, if you put $35 in the ground, in 1970, if you buried $35, what can you buy with that $35 today versus what you could have bought in 1970? I mean, a fraction of the stuff. But if you buried an ounce of gold in the ground in 1935, in 1970, and when you buried it, you, you bought it for $35 and you dig it up today and it's $1,700, obviously you can buy a lot more with the ounce of gold than $35 in cash, right? So sure. gold will do a better job. But you don't have to bury your money in the ground. You can invest it. So if I could take my money and invest it in a company, right, a stock that is growing their earnings and paying good dividends, that's better than just burying my gold in the ground. Gold is not a long-term investment. Gold's not going to grow. You know, it's just there, right? So you can preserve value in gold. 
when you invest money, you're trying to gain value, not preserve it. Mm. So like when people compare gold and they say gold's a lousy investment compared to the stock market. Well, of course, because gold's not an investment. It's money. It's a commodity. What you have to compare huh. gold with is dollars or euros that you just put in, you know, stuff them under your mattress. So if you're going to yeah. take, uh, you know, something and stuff it under your mattress, you're much better off with gold coins than paper dollars. Problem is you can't stuff Bitcoins anywhere because they don't have any any substance. But I think Bitcoins are just a gamble. I don't think Bitcoins will have any value uh, in 100 years. I, they probably may not even have any value in 10 years. I don't know. I don't know how long this bubble is going to go on. Uh, but I wouldn't want to gamble with it, gamble on it. Now, a question I have for you is Greece and Italy and some of these European countries, Portugal, Spain, yeah, yeah. have had massive periods of austerity or uh, really to, to prevent the need to continue printing money uh, just by cutting expenditures. And, and you drive through some of these cities outside Athens, for example, there's trash everywhere. They don't have to, they don't have enough trucks or at least back, back when the austerity was yeah, happening. And I don't want to paint with a, a broad brush here, but what I'm, I'm trying to go back to that 2013, 2014 time when we, when we saw this, are you suggesting that the United States needs more of that? The kind of like what, you know, Portugal, Italy, Greece, Spain saw. Oh, more. And, you know, they haven't been oh, wow. doing it because they've been relying on Germany. And it's, you know, unfortunate for yeah. the Germans that they've taken on this. But no, what, what we need is austerity at the government level, number one. Mm -hmm. right? The government has to cut spending. Um, but, yeah, I mean, people have to live within their means. I mean, we have to stop encouraging people to go out and spend money. I mean, we need to save money. I mean, if we're going to have a real economy again, if we want to be self-sufficient and be able to produce the things that we consume and not have these huge trade deficits, I mean, we can. We don't have to produce everything we consume, but we have to produce something because we need to trade what we produce for the goods that other people produce. That's, that's what trade is about. It's not about just you know going into debt. We have to make stuff either that we want or that consumers in other countries want. But the way to make stuff is you need capital, you need savings, you need investment. We don't have it because we're spending everything. So the whole American economy needs to go through a transformation from an economy where we borrow and spend to an economy where we save and produce. Now that transition is gonna be very painful for a lot of people. A lot of people are gonna lose a lot of money, um, but it has to happen. I mean, the pain is going to come eventually anyway, uh, but this way, at least it will be constructive pain. But then there's a big light at the end of the tunnel. If we can get back to the type of economy we had before the government screwed it up, right, we will be much wealthier. I mean, think about uh, what it was to be an American in the 1950s. Where did the American middle class come from? You know, this wasn't a fantasy. If you go back and you look at some of these old television shows, but a man back then who didn't even go to college, in fact, you didn't even have to go to high school. You could have you know, dropped out before high school. But, you know, but the average man could go and get a job in America and buy a house, buy a car. His wife didn't have to have a job. She could stay at home. He could have three, four kids, right? S support them all, no credit cards, uh, no, buy a car, no loan, pay cash take vacations, save for his retirement, 
We had, I mean, we had a very, very high standard of living. The envy of the world. I mean, nobody but Americans lived the way Americans did in the 1950s. I mean, now there was a whole expression about ugly Americans because an American, a fireman, would take a, a, a vacation in Europe and he thought he was rich because the dollar was right. so strong. Everything was so cheap for us. But we built this up based on savings and, and production. You know, we built the economy without an income tax, without a social security tax. Yes, we had those things in 1950, but they were new. They didn't really start coming in. The income tax really came in during the Second World War. Uh, social security tax didn't come in until the 1930s, but it was very low. And it wasn't self-employed people didn't pay the social security tax back then. Uh, so we had a much, much smaller government. And our prosperity was created uh, during the decades that preceded that. Uh, so we could have a much, much higher standard of living if we go back to a free market economy uh, and not this you know, gigantic bubble that the uh, government continues to inflate. If, if we had a high standard of living, though, in, in the 50s relative to today, I mean, doesn't that imply that there was no sort of, uh, I mean, for me, what I kind of see happening is this concentration of value, right? You've got uh, people who are providing extreme value, per, for example, in technology, making mm -hmm. a lot more money. Is, isn't that the way it's supposed to work in a free market, that, that yeah. those people providing more value have a higher standard of living? And, and isn't that actually what we're seeing? I mean, in the 50s, I feel like as, as an average, the standard of living was lower than it is today. No, no, it was higher, much higher. Yeah, yeah. Now, the, now the thing is, there has been some uh, advancement, technological mm. advancement, right? So we have improvements in technology, but if you compare, let's say, the gains, right, in the standard of living or the you know the way people live from 1950 to today, right? That's about a 70-year time period. If you then contrast that to the advances from 1880 to 1950 and say, where did we see a bigger uh, improvement in living standards? It was 1880 to 1950. I mean, picture somebody in 1880 going in a time machine in 1950. I mean, it would be like a completely different world. I mean, a guy in right. 1880, he had candles lighting his house. He rode on a he 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 went to work on a horse, right? He went to the bathroom in an outhouse, right? They had no appliances. There was no radio, television, airplane. I mean, it, I mean, the people in 1880, they lived pretty much the same way as they did in 1580. There really wasn't sure. much advancement. Then all of a sudden we have the Industrial Revolution, free market capitalism, you know, really unleashed, at, you know, and you go fast forward to 1950. And you got television, you got telephones, you got airplanes, you got cars, you got refrigeration, you got air conditioning, electricity, indoor plumbing. You know, you got all the appliances, refrigerators, washer dryers. Back in 1880, how did they refrigerate stuff? They didn't. I mean, maybe they, if it was cold, you could stick it out in the ice. I mean, you did you did your laundry in a in the stream. You had people were like people churned butter by hand. I mean, you couldn't go to the store in 1880 and buy a stick of butter. You had to make that stuff. I mean, so. But is that I mean, what, what do we have? Though? Let me I mean, finish. My, let me finish my point. Yeah. What do we have now that we didn't have in 1950? Yeah, I mean, we got the TVs are better, but we had TV yeah. back then. All, the only thing we really have now that we didn't have in 1950 are cell phones, computers. I mean, but the living standard is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about okay. in 1950, a guy 
without a college degree, without a high school degree, could support a wife and a family without even going into debt. Mm -hmm. You can't even do that. I mean, today, the yeah. average middle class family has a husband and wife both working full time. Sometimes they have second jobs and they still can't make ends meet. A lot of them can barely afford one kid, let alone four. They're up to their eyeballs in debt. I mean, the standard of living is much, much lower. And in 1950, America was the world's you know, wealthy country. We, our manufacturing dominated the economy. I mean, it was like night and day compared to where we are. Now, I don't want to you know, get rid of all the technology that we've accumulated since 1950. But what I do recognize is had we maintained the same relative level of economic freedom that we had you know, from 1880 to 1950, if we had maintained that for the last 70 years, we would have so much more technology now. Than we have. I mean, it, it, you, you wouldn't even recognize America today. Uh, you know, because back in 1950, America had a standard of living that no one in the world could even come close to. I mean, the, the second place wasn't even close to America. Now there are many countries that have living standards higher than the United States. So, I mean, if we had kept our lead and continued to enjoy the, the free market capitalism, I mean, who knows what, what it would be like here. So, I mean, if, if we have this stalling of the standard of living, essentially, that you've described, is this an issue of a lack of education or, or is this a, a technology issue? Is it a money issue or, or is it just the government failing to educate folks to like, hey, you know, this is where you should be working right now because this is where that, that single man that you've described uh, from the 50s can still afford that vacation and house for everyone. Is, is there a reason that's not happening? Yeah, it's not about the government's failure to do something. It's about the government mm -hmm. having already done too much. That is the problem. Okay. We need to get the government out of the economy. The government has screwed all this up. Government regulation, government subsidies, government taxation, programs. That is what has stopped the dynamism that existed in the past. That was the key mm -hmm. to our prosperity was free market capitalism. So we don't need any more government. We already have too much government. That is the problem, right? We need to get government out of everything, including education. It's not like we just need more government education. We don't, you know, we need more private sector education, which is much more efficient. You know, the private sector can educate people far more efficiently than the government. They won't have to stay in school nearly as many years. You know, it won't take that long to learn and it won't cost anywhere near that much money. I mean, that's who handled education initially. Look, get the constitution. There's nothing in the constitution about education. Education doesn't appear once in the Constitution. Uh, so, you, you know, they had schools back then when they wrote the Constitution. Yes, clearly they did. But they didn't want the government to have anything to do with it. Got it. Got it. And now you're, you're talking about, uh, obviously, we, we, we know you trying to get reduced government is a big goal of yours. Uh, one of the reasons you're also in Puerto Rico. Now, but you're also not short the stock market. And you're talking about this collapse of the dollar and, and how we've got to maybe yeah. invest outside the United States. Uh, you know, can you clarify this a little bit? Why not be short the stock market? I mean, if the dollar collapses, aren't we going to have issues in U.S. stocks? Well, if the dollar collapses, you know, really crashes, well, stocks yeah. are going to go up in dollars. I mean, you go back to the hyperinflation in, in, okay. in, in Zimbabwe, right? The Zimbabwe mm -hmm. stock market was the strongest or best performing stock market in the world in its own currency. So if I'm going to short U.S. stocks and let's say U.S. stocks go down by 50 percent, but the dollar goes down by 90 percent, U.S. stocks can still go up fourfold 
in that environment. So I would be a loser. So I, what I want to do good. is own the stuff that's going to go up in real terms instead of being short uh, the this U.S. stock market. But if the Fed was honest, right, if the Fed was not going to intervene, then, yeah, I'd short the stock market. It'd be a great trade. But the problem is wow. I don't want to fight the Fed. That, that's an old expression. Don't okay. fight the Fed. I'm not. I'm betting on the Fed. I'm betting the Fed is going to destroy the dollar because that's what they're doing. All of their policies is designed to destroy the dollar. So I just, I'm just betting that they're going to succeed. Uh, and, and so that's why I own gold. That's why I own foreign stocks. I don't want to fight the Fed. I'm, I'm, I'm basically riding the wave that the Fed is creating. Isn't our GDP going to blow up, though, once our economy opens up again here? And, and isn't growth going to exceed inflation anyway to the point where we have those real returns and, and we just continue to see uh, a growth, maybe the growth that we saw between 2011 and 20? I mean, why, why would we see anything other than what we had between 11 and 20? Why, why do we have well, to see this implosion? Exactly. What we had then was fake, too. We didn't have a real economy. We had consumers spending borrowed money. We had massive deficits under Trump. We had ma massive deficits under Obama. We had artificially low interest rates, even though the Fed allowed rates to rise a little bit under Trump, they were still artificially low. So we had a bubble economy the entire time. Yes, we're going to go back to that bubble. Uh, but the problem is it's, it's so much bigger now. But this is not economic growth that we're having. In fact, we've guaranteed that we are incentivizing people not to work. We are paying people more money not to work than what they would earn if they returned to work. So we're going to have an ever-increasing army of people who are going to be dependent on government. Where's the government going to get that money? The Fed's going to print it. Uh, and, of course, the Biden administration, uh, we're going to have some type of increase in the minimum wage, even if they couldn't cram it through in the, this, this $1.9 trillion bill. It's going to come. That's going to permanently put more people out of work, which means they're going to now be dependent on uh, the government, which is dependent on, on the Fed. But we're gonna have more government spending under Biden, uh, more programs, and that does even more damage to the economy. Look, the GDP could go up because all the GDP measures is what we're spending. <laughs> but, right. the, you know, but if we're borrowing and printing the money, we're not having an actual increase in our standard of living. Mm. So, I mean, who says it has to stop though? I mean, can't this keep going for 30 years? Well, in theory, it could, but and it's already been going for 30 years. I mean, you and I could have had this conversation 30 years ago and you could have said, I could have pointed out all these problems and you would have said, well, couldn't yeah. it keep going for it? And it has. But the problem yeah. is eventually you get to the point where, you know, you can't go anymore. Right. It's like, well, how many mm -hmm. how many straws can I put on this camel's back? Well, we'll know when we put the last straw. Right. But until the last straw, you don't really know the answer to that question. So could we have another 30 years? It's possible. Is it likely? Probably not. I mean, given I mean, if we went on like this for another 30 years, I mean, multiply the debt. I mean, just it, there's no way. So I don't even think mathematically it's, it's possible. The question is, do we have three more years? That might be, you know, a more realistic time frame. You know, maybe that's the over under. On this thing before the crisis, because I think we're, you know, we're, we're really late in this game. Kind of like a Ray Dalio saying we're in the ninth inning, huh? Yeah. And there's a lot of people, look, there's a lot of other very smart people, probably smarter than me. I don't even want to necessarily put myself in the camp of really smart people, but there are some really smart people 
who are now really starting to say the things that I've been saying. So I, I might have been saying it earlier, but now a lot of people who were only you know, talking about it as a remote possibility or theorizing about it are now coming out and saying, yeah, this is going to happen. So, I mean, the choir of people that are now singing the same song is a lot uh, uh, bigger now than it was. And now, Biden obviously has these big plans coming up for infrastructure. I know you're, you know, my feeling is you're, you're very anti this government spending. Isn't uh, infrastructure spending and, and transitioning and incentivizing green a good thing? Isn't that going to create jobs? No, it'll just destroy jobs. You know, I mean, the government <laughs> is great at creating jobs in the in the in the uh, public sector that it can appoint that it can point to. Hey, look, we created these jobs. But the resources to create those jobs has to be appropriated from the private sector. So let's say the government creates, you know, a thousand jobs in the in the government. But in order to fund those jobs, they destroy two thousand jobs in the private sector. See, nobody sees the jobs that are destroyed because the government doesn't, you know, take responsibility for those. But it takes credit for the ones that it creates. And there's a big difference between the job that comes about in the private sector and the one that the government creates. The private sector jobs are necessary and productive. And if they weren't, they wouldn't exist because the employer can only hire people if he can make a profit. And he can only make a profit if he is adding value uh, to the customer. The government can employ people even if they're doing damage, right? The government can employ uh, 100 people digging ditches and then pay another people $100 to fill them back up again, right? No private business could, could stay in business doing that, right? They, they'd run out of money and go bankrupt. But the government could do it until the country goes bankrupt, until the taxpayer goes bankrupt. So government jobs are non-productive jobs. The private sector mm -hmm. jobs are productive. You know, back in the old Soviet Union, there was full employment. Everybody had a job. Nobody was unemployed in the Soviet Union. Everybody worked for the government. But if you wanted to buy bread, you had to wait in a four-hour line or an eight-hour line, right? So what good is it to have a non-productive government job? We want real jobs because jobs are not a goal. Jobs are a means to an end. What we want is the production that the jobs create. We don't want to work because we want to work. We want to work because of all the stuff that we produce because of the work. So if the government employs people to dig ditches and it employs more people to fill them back up again, the, the labor was a complete waste. We got nothing from those jobs, right? Now, Harry Dent thinks the market's going to, like the stock market's going to sell off 90%. Uh, you're suggesting that uh, as the dollar collapses, the stock market will actually go up, which is one of the reasons that uh, you're not short the stock market. Can you comment on that? Yeah. I mean, look, I agree with Harry that the U.S. stock market could go down by 90%. I just disagree wow. with him as to in terms of what. So Harry says the stock market will go down 90% in terms of dollars. And I would say, no, it will go down 90% in terms of gold, right? So yes, you know, so you'll see the loss of value of stocks when you measure them in gold, but you will not see the loss when you measure them in dollars. You know, uh, and, you know it's like, because the, the gold is constant. The dollar is not. It's like if, if I'm going to measure you and I'm going to measure your height with a ruler that has 12 inches, and let's say you're six feet tall, right? Well, you're always going to be six feet tall if I measure you with that ruler. But if the government is in charge of the rulers and they keep making them smaller and smaller and smaller, well, if I measure you with a ruler that only has six inches in it, 
well, are you really 12 feet tall? No, because <laughs> you, you haven't changed in height. I just got a smaller ruler. So this is what's happening. If we keep making the dollar smaller, the stock market is going to look bigger and bigger and bigger. But gold is constant. And so when I measure the stock market in terms of gold, then I'll see the real value. The re ah, got it. And and so if we had to rank uh, what you think is, uh, and I want to talk about the Elon Musk tweets here, but if we had to rank sort of uh, things on a BS scale, it kind of sounds like you're suggesting gold is the least BS. <coughs> then you got the dollar and then you got Bitcoin as the most BS. Is, is that what yeah, you're Yeah, well, I don't think... Yeah, well, I don't think gold is BS at all. I mean, gold is gold. Okay, so that's but zero. Elon Musk, yeah, the whole Elon Musk, you know, uh, exchange, which you know, ended up with with me getting a uh, an eggplant, right? But uh, Musk, <laughs> I gotta clip out, that one, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Musk tweeted out that Bitcoin was almost as BS as fiat. Yeah. And so I read that and I say, aha, so at least he knows they're both BS. He just thinks that fiat is more BS than Bitcoin. I disagree. I think Bitcoin is more BS than fiat. And so I, I pointed that out. And then he sends a tweet where he tries to explain to me why Bitcoin is a superior money uh, to, to gold. And I addressed his tweet. I sent like three or four replies. I think I really nailed the replies. You know, people can look at them. And I explained why. Musk's understanding of money was wrong, which proves that, you know, you can have money and not understand it because uh, uh, Musk has more money than any of us. At least he did until this week. Uh, but he has more money than just about all of us, you know, but uh, but he doesn't necessarily understand it, which is fine. I mean, he's an engineer. He's not an economist. Uh, but I tried to educate him. I mean, I'm you know, I don't pretend to be smarter than Musk. He's probably got a much higher IQ than I do. But, you know, Einstein, I think, was a socialist, too. I mean, you could be a brilliant man, you know, and, and but, you know, it depends on what you're you're spending your time on. I'm sure if Einstein studied economics long enough, he would have been a free market Austrian economist like me. But he didn't. You know, he was more into you know mathematics and physics or whatever he was doing. And so he, he, he didn't pursue that. But um, hmm. I think I did a good job of uh, explaining to Musk where he was wrong in his tweet. In his comparison. But anyway, Musk ignored all those tweets. Then a couple of days later, I happened to tweet out just to point out that, hey, Tesla is now in a bear market. And it's only been about a week yeah. since he announced that he has Bitcoin. And a week later, the stock's in a bear market. And almost the entire decline happened after the announcement that they had Bitcoin, even with Bitcoin going up. So the, the yeah. he put he spent 1.5 billion of shareholder money on Bitcoin. He bought the Bitcoin at about 35,000 and now it's over 50,000. There's all these articles about how Tesla has made more money on its Bitcoin than selling cars, which is, you know, is a bigger problem in and of itself for a car company. But of course, it hasn't really made any money on Bitcoin because it hasn't sold it yet. You know, getting putting 1.5 billion in is a lot different than taking 1.5 billion out when you have a thin market. But I just pointed out, hey, this is a quick bear market, even with Bitcoin going up. And so I said, hey, you know, you've got Michael Saylor out there from MicroStrategy. And everybody is saying that, you know, Elon Musk is just going to start a trend. And now all these CEOs are going to put Bitcoin on their balance sheet. And my point was, wait a minute, Bitcoin puts uh, uh, um, Tesla puts Bitcoin on the balance sheet. 
and a week later the stock's in a bear market, I don't know. I mean, are a lot of other CEOs going to want to do that now? I mean, it seems to me that it's not a, an, an example that other CEOs are going to want to follow, given the way the market has reacted to uh, uh, Tesla buying Bitcoin. The market, the shareholders have voted and they've dumped the stock. So I put out this tweet to point this out. And I guess uh, that irritated Elon a bit or Mr. Musk. Uh, but anyway, uh, so then he replied to my tweet with an eggplant, you know, which yes. is a very phallic looking uh, a vegetable. And uh, so, you know, basically that was it. I mean, he was flipping me off or, you know, he was like, but, you know, I had a valid concern. I mean, I'm not a Tesla no. shareholder, so it's not as big a deal to me. But I mean, what if there's some Tesla shareholders that like, yeah, you know, we don't actually approve of you buying Bitcoin with our cash. Oh, yeah. You know, we bought Tesla because we wanted to buy an automobile company. If we wanted to buy Bitcoin, yeah. we would have bought Bitcoin. You know, I didn't send my money into Tesla for you to use it to buy Bitcoin. And, and so, you know, I think that attitude is very, you know, very flippant of Musk to not consider the fact that not all of his shareholders, you know, are Bitcoin hodlers. And even the ones that are, you would want, you would think they'd want diversification. If I want Bitcoin, I'll buy Bitcoin. If I want Tesla, I'll buy Tesla. Don't now marry the two together. So now when I buy Tesla, I'm also getting Bitcoin. I mean, you know, why muddy those waters? Well, I, I think the argument for muddying the waters is essentially it's a fight against fiat, right? You've got this uh, inflationary uh, currency, essentially, the, this currency that continues to expand its money supply, uh, where you have Bitcoin that by its nature is deflationary. So so maybe if we set aside the, okay, well, well, you know, the only thing Bitcoin might have is, is the belief that it has value, right? I can't actually take Bitcoin and like you mentioned, uh, use, use it for salt or coffee or whatever. Uh, you know, going back to the previous part of uh, our discussion here, I mean, aren't they right though, in some sense no. that, hey, why not park this extra money that you have and put it into something that's not gonna get basically no. inflated away? But you don't know that it's not gonna crash. Look, what if Musk was really worried about inflation, right? What yeah. they should do yeah. is start building up their inventory of the commodities that they need to buy, like copper, mm. like nickel, okay. you know, things that they need in these electric cars. Instead of keeping all the cash, keep it in the good commodities that you know you're going to need or, you know, buy, you know, invest in, in, in ETFs or, you know, of, of, of that. Or in a way, gold, if you realize that there is some kind of relationship between gold and by the way, silver, silver is used in the the automobile so buy some silver yeah. i mean actually buy the things that you know you're going to need as a hedge right now it makes no sense to gamble on bitcoin you know especially what the way michael saylor talks about it like well you know inflation could be two or three percent a year so i'm going to buy something that can lose two or three percent in a minute i mean look at how much what if i was worried about inflation and i bought bitcoin last week at 58,000 and a week later it's at, it's at 48,000. I mean, I was worried about 2% inflation. I just lost 10, 15% of my money over. I mean, it, it's not stable. Now you could say, oh, gold would have gone down too. Yes, gold is down too, just not nearly as much and as quickly as, as Bitcoin. But there's, no, there's nothing that says that Bitcoin won't be at zero. I mean, gold's never going to be at zero. It's never been at zero. And there's no way that it could be at zero because there's too many people who need gold who would buy it long before the price ever got down there. Um, but yeah, I mean, so if all these companies were really worried about the dollar, they have other things they could do with their cash. 
They can diversify into other currencies that they think are more stable. They can diversify into gold or silver, which they could use as money. They can build up their inventory. I mentioned Starbucks earlier. They could just buy a bunch of coffee. Hey, we know we're going to need coffee. Let's just lock up a lot of coffee contracts, right? Uh, right airlines, right. let's just start buying fuel. Let's, you know, we don't want to hold cash. The other thing they could do, obviously, is pay out dividends. Hey, we're not going to hold a bunch of cash because it's losing value here. We're going to send it out to our shareholders. Do something with it. We don't want to just hold it here for you. They could obviously use it to buy back their stock, which is typically uh, what they do, too. If they say, well, we'll just buy back stock. Uh, but, I mean, taking the cash and saying, oh, because there's inflation, we're going to gamble on, on, on Bitcoin. Um, right. That makes no sense whatsoever. And, you know, people who don't think it's gambling. I mean, I was on Fox Business the other day and, you know, I, we had the same argument. I said, I don't think a company should be gambling on Bitcoin. And he said, it's not gambling. So, well, of course it's gambling. I mean, I mean, you're betting that the price goes up. Isn't that a gamble? I mean, there's no guarantee that it's going to go up. It could just as easily crash. Anybody who's buying Bitcoin is gambling on the price. You're gambling that people are going to want to buy Bitcoin in the future. They may not. It's a bet. And it's a very risky bet. Now, just because the bet has paid off in the past, they always want to point to how much it's gone up. Yes, it has gone up a lot in the past. But that doesn't mean it can't come crashing down. Just, you know, just because it went up before it crashes, you can look at every mania. Everything goes up before it comes down. The sure. fact that it goes up doesn't you. mean anything. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're arguing that Bitcoin is volatile, therefore it's a gamble. But ETFs can go up or down as well. And there's no guarantee that gold goes up. I mean, maybe tomorrow Harvard releases studies that says gold causes cancer and, and all of a sudden <laughs> gold gets axed, right? Uh, yeah, and, and, and inventories at Tesla, you know, if they increase inventories at Tesla, and that's that's very inconvenient. You're going back to the system of barter, basically, by, by storing yeah. product. Uh, and so you're well, arguing Bitcoin is bad because it's volatile. Need. Yeah, they're but, just but holding does volatility inventory. equal risk. Well, that well, volatility is risk by definition. That's how you uh, risk is a measure of volatility. But um, the problem with Bitcoin is not simply that it's volatile, because you're right. I mean, everything has some degree of volatility, right? Uh, Bitcoin has a lot more volatility than most other things. So, so Bitcoin is much more volatile than gold. But yes, gold has volatility too. Gold is less volatile than the stock market, is less volatile than a lot of other commodities that are that are subject to much uh, greater fluctuations. But my problem with Bitcoin as a store of value isn't its volatility. Its volatility is what makes it problematic to use as a medium of exchange, as you know, as you know, and as a unit of account. The problem with it being a store of value has got nothing to do with the volatility. It's got to do with the fact that it has no value. So that is the risk. When you're gambling on Bitcoin, you are inherently buying something with no value, betting that people will value it in the future and want to buy it. I'm not making that leap of faith with gold. Gold's been around for 5,000 years. You know, we people have always been using gold. So it's not a crazy speculation for me to assume that people are still going to want gold in the future, right? I mean, they've always wanted it in human recorded history. I mean, gold has properties that no other metal uh, can, can replicate as good. Uh, so there are all these demands. I mean, one of the reasons that gold isn't used more often is because it's too expensive. And so we substitute other metals that are cheaper, that aren't as good, but they're good enough given sure. the, the cost. But in certain 
areas where you need the absolute best, then you pay for gold, even though it's more expensive. In certain applications, you need that enhanced uh, uh, quality. So as the price of gold comes down, people will start using gold that weren't using it before. You know, and, and, and so the uses will grow as the price goes down. And there's going to be some kind of natural floor to stop gold from falling. I mean, you know, and you can look historically and you can see, well, wh what is the price of gold relative to the price of copper? What is the price of gold relative to a barrel of oil? And if it gets too out of whack, well, people that have those commodities will switch them for gold. I mean, so you have this stuff that you can that you have going for you. Bitcoin is a blind leap of faith. I mean, yes, you have the last 10 years of the price going up, but you have the price going up based 100% on faith and nothing else. And also the, the faith that nothing is going to come around that people value more than Bitcoin because Bitcoin is just a digital currency. There is no limit to the number of digital currencies that can be created. I mean, right now there's, I don't know, 6,000 of them or eight, I forget how many. Look, Elon Musk keeps tweeting about Dogecoin. Who's to say that Dogecoin, which started as a joke, maybe Dogecoin replaces Bitcoin? I mean, he keeps saying it's the, the crypto of the people. I mean, why is Dogecoin worse than Bitcoin? In fact, it's probably better than Bitcoin. It probably, it probably improved on Bitcoin. But of course, somebody was, can come along with a whole new cryptocurrency that's better than both. You know, And then you sure. don't even know about the science. I mean, we think that Bitcoin is unhackable, right? People keep right. telling me, Peter, you know, one day we're going to be mining for gold in outer space and they're going to have gold in asteroids. And so we're going to have all this supply. Well, you know, maybe, I mean, my guess would be that gold is pretty rare in the galaxy. And so, you know, sure. if it's rare on earth, it's probably rare everywhere. I don't know, but it's, you know, but, but we're going to need more gold in the future because we're probably going to have all sorts of new uses. In fact, if we have spaceships, we're probably going to be putting a lot of gold in them uh, to make them operate efficiently. I don't know. But long before we're mining gold on asteroids, we'll have computers that can hack Bitcoin. <laughs> I mean, I think oh that I mean, okay. they, they may they may, you know, quantum computing, whatever. They may look back sure. at it and look at this like, oh, this code, the blockchain. Oh, that's, you know, child's play. I mean, how do we know? Because all you're betting uh. on is this computer network, which, by the way, it's ex it's extremely expensive to uh, operate the Bitcoin network. Lots of energy is used. You know, people keep talking about, well, gold is expensive to mine. To mine it, yes, but once I have an ounce of gold and I put it in my wallet or in my vault, there's no energy that's required to give that gold value. The only thing that right. gives Bitcoin value is the network that is, exists so you can transact it, you can exchange it. And that costs a fortune to maintain based on all the electricity uh, that is used to power it. Yeah, it, it is interesting, though, that uh, over the past years, energy usage has almost really been flat as, as sort of Bitcoin mining becomes more efficient. I, I think the supercomputer risk is, is valid. But I, I want to go back for a moment and just unpackage something you mentioned. You mentioned that uh, risk is a measure of volatility. Uh, to me, I've always looked at risk as a chance of going bankrupt, of going bust. That volatility is just a fluctuation in really people's moods and desire to pay for something. So is it not possible that Bitcoin is an investment? Maybe it's not a medium of, of exchange. 
exchange. You know, maybe Bitcoin is just an investment for Tesla. And in theory, I mean, gold only goes up because people pay more for it. Uh, sure, you know, there are some enhanced properties of gold. But look, I mean, in, in, as technology advances, we could find substitutes and maybe we don't need gold and, and semiconductors and, and chips anymore. Yeah. So, well, you know, who cares that there's this faith in Bitcoin? Isn't it an OK to investment then? Well, first of all, when it comes to risk, yeah, I mean, there are different meanings of risk in, in different yeah. circumstances. And I, I mean, I, when I go outside, I risk getting uh, hit by a car uh, and that's a risk. But when it comes to portfolio analysis, risk yeah. is volatility. I mean, that's basically what it is. Um, and so that's just how everybody looks at it. But when mm. it comes to Bitcoin, Bitcoin is not an investment, right? Buying gold is not an investment either. Right. And the, gold is a commodity. And, you know, you can buy an economy, you can buy a commodity to speculate in it if you think, you know, yeah. in the short run, or you can hold it as a store of value if it's if it's capable of storing value like like gold is. But an investment is something that throws off a return. Right. So I can loan my gold to somebody and they can pay me interest. And that would be a way to invest my gold where I loaned it to somebody and they're going to pay me back more gold than I loaned them, right? It's a, a note, a bond. But make, making a loan, right, bond, it is an investment. I can buy real estate because I can rent it out um, and that there's it's an investment. I mean, if I buy it for myself, it's not really an investment, but I can still use it. If I buy property to use personally, I get the benefit of using the property and maybe I don't have to rent something so it could throw off a return in that I don't have to pay rent anymore because now I own a house. And so it's it's an investment in not paying rent. Uh, but now I have other costs that I may own as a homeowner that may exceed the rent. But rental right. property is clearly an investment. I collect rent. Stocks are an investment because stocks pay dividends and even growth stocks. And we talked about that at the beginning of the show. Growth stocks may not pay dividends today, but what you're buying is the present value of their future dividends. They're investing their income now to grow the business so that in the future, they can pay even greater uh, dividends than they're paying now. And a lot of the stocks that don't use their income to pay dividends, use their income to buy back stock. And so they return the investors uh, through that. Uh, and, and so that makes it an investment. But mm -hmm. if something does not throw off any income, you're not making an investment. Now you can buy raw land, right? Let's say I buy raw land. I'm a speculator in land. That's not an investment. If I just buy raw land, I'm, I'm, I'm a land speculator. If I buy land that's already been developed and has mm. income, then I'm a, I'm a real estate investor. Now you can be a, a, a land speculator and you can make money. I can have, I can buy sure. some land and then it can go up and I can sell it a profit. I made money speculating in, in, in land. Um, so, if you're buying Bitcoin, it's not an investment because it doesn't have a return. It's not a commodity because it doesn't have a use. It is a speculation. Bitcoin is a digital mm -hmm. token that people collect and people trade. And, and so what Tesla is doing is speculating on that token going up in price. And I just don't think that companies should be gambling with shareholder money. What's that? That's not their function. Return the money to the shareholders. If you don't need it, then give it to the shareholders in a dividend and let them gamble with it if that's what they want to do with it. Got it. Uh, I could see that. Uh, I think a lot of people would agree there's definitely an element of speculation. Uh, it's to, all speculation. To it's not an element. <laughs> so, okay. It's 100%. So, something I would ask you, though, that I think might be a little bit even more speculative than Bitcoin 
even though I think you think Bitcoin is the ultimate form of speculation, I got to ask you about this. And this is something that's become more popular since we last talked. Non-fungible tokens and investing in digital art. Have, have Did you hear what happened with Logan Paul? Well, you know, I, well, I know he's moving to Puerto Rico, so apparently he's going to be my new neighbor. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I and I know he's got a fight scheduled, right? That um, I don't know if it's going to be a so fight. So you got to hear he's this. Gonna get, he's just going to get beat up. But I think that's happening uh, happening next week. But I didn't hear about any kind of art. You know, there's a lot of artists. Uh, so listen here. to this. Logan Paul created a, basically a digital trading card of of maybe a version of himself, like an online piece of art of himself. So here's this. Rather than have a Pokemon card in your hand, you there's this digital card of Logan Paul that exists. He sold ownership rights in that digital card of himself and made over $3 million selling rights to this digital card uh, himself in, in less than a day. And yeah. through well, this, does, is tokens. there, is it, is it like a limited edition though? They said there's a certain number that. Well, there's, there's only one, right? There's, but it, it doesn't exist. It's just digital, right? Right. But and, how many so people theory, can buy can, it? How many people can buy the same thing? Yeah. There's a limit to how many, how, how many shares you could have of it. I, whether it was like 3000 or something like that, people can buy it or something like that. Uh, and so he sold a ton of these. I mean, in theory, he could just keep creating more and more of this art. But what they're doing is they're turning this art into a non-fungible token and then selling shares of it. And so people are buying a share of this Logan Paul card, speculating that in the future, somebody else is going to want this first edition digital card from Logan Paul. Uh, yeah, you know, in I my mean, opinion. Yeah, it sounds like they did these crypto kitties. I know. I remember that. Yeah, I don't know if they're still that. around. Yeah. But look, yep. I mean. I mean, to the extent that you can create a market for your art and yeah. you can limit the supply, but I, I wouldn't imagine, I mean, if there, there's that these things will ever really be uh, a big collector item, like, you know, some of these uh, uh, paintings are, you know, from, uh, you know, the, the, the old masters, the impressionists, or there's all these, you know, paintings and my, where you can get a hundred million dollars for a painting um sure. you know, picasso th yeah yeah these these things are never going to be truly scarce in the mind of a collector i don't think i can't see mm -hmm. somebody like oh having a collection of logan paul digital images and feeling like <laughs> some real pride of ownership like you would get you know hanging that picasso on your wall and knowing hey i've got a pablo picasso the guy himself painted this and i've got the mm -hmm. canvas that he actually painted yeah. and there's only like one in the world of this particular original and there's only X number of original Picassos and I own this one. And, mm. and there's always going to be a demand. I think for that, I think because rich people are always going to need places to put their wealth. And there's a lot of pride that comes with a Picasso because after all, once you've bought all the things that money can buy, what else are you going to get? I mean, how, right. How, how many yachts do you need? How, you know, so Bitcoin. you got you got all yeah. Well, who's going to have? I'm, I don't think anyone's going to have a lot of pride taking people, bringing their friends over to admire their Bitcoin, you know, as opposed <laughs> to you know my my Picasso and the joy of you know collecting collecting art uh, and accumulating a collection of art uh, versus uh, a collection of cryptocurrencies. But look, I mean, obviously this kid is making a lot of money. Um, I don't know to the extent that what he's selling 
if it's going to be a problem with any kind of regulators. I mean, how they would look at this. Is it a security? Right. Uh, are they unregistered? I don't know. I mean, this guy might have opened up a big can of worms. Uh, so I don't know how he's selling it or how he, maybe he's doing it completely legit. But to me, it sounds like the guy that's going to make all the money is Logan Paul. <laughs> you know, now there may be some other people that get in and out of his uh, digital art and make a profit, yeah. but it will come at the expense of the other people who suffer a loss. But it could be a gravy train for him if he can keep on issuing more and more. But of course, the more sure. supply he floods the market, the less it's going to be worth. So he'd have to like really, you know, he'd have to just do it once in a while if he wants to kind of maintain, you know, the the value, the supposed value. But I mean, if it's a, if it's a digital artwork, though, is there any is there anything that stops me from copying it so my, my a friend can have it, even though it wouldn't be the original, he would still be able to look at it. You know, I, I don't know. I mean. Yeah, that that confuses me a bit too. I believe it's the the sort of the bragging rights of having a share of the actual unique thing. Oh, so uh, it's and, a share. Uh, oh, oh, he made one card, and everybody owns uh, a fraction of it. Now I get it. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. You yeah. Own, but you you own a fraction of what? You own a fraction of nothing because how, how is he? I mean, what what are they going to end up selling it? So he's tokenizing the card and letting everybody yes. own a piece of it. You know, I think you can yes. do that with any asset, right? Any asset, yes. I can say, hey, I own a house and now I'm going to tokenize my house and I, you, everybody can buy a, a thousandth of it. But, right. you know, I mean, what I mean, what does that ownership really mean if you have no right to use the house? You know, it's like, it's like let's say I, I tokenized my own house and I kept 51% yeah. of the house and I sold the rights to the other 49%. I mean, I yeah. still, I have control. I live in the house. I don't charge myself any rent. And I'm going to sell these tokens. And I'm going to collect all this money. And now you own a share of a house that you can't use and you can't rent. It's like, you know. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, I think that you mentioned something as well that made me very concerned about this, this NFT space, uh, non-fungible tokens. Uh, one of the things that people say as well, but but the, the thing is that first thing he made is unique. And, and my counter argument has been, but he could just make more of those. And yeah. sure, they'll be slightly different, but it kind of dilutes the amount of people who have money to keep buying these NFTs. How, how can value be sustained when every creator goes out there and says, here's the Meet Kevin card. Here's the, you know, I, I don't know, Jake Paul card. Like, there's only so much money that can go into these. How are these going to go up in value? Is, is, this, is this like a, a disaster yeah, look, waiting to happen? Well, of course. I mean, because you're actually buying nothing, you know, you're, I mean, I mean, if they look, I mean, obviously like a stock, you're buying shares of a stock. So if hmm. um, you were tokenizing something that had income, let's say I had a, uh, an income producing asset and I sold tokens yeah. and your token yeah. entitled you to your share of the income. And every, you know, every quarter I sent you a check. And, and, and then if you sold that token, whoever bought it from you would be entitled to that income stream. Okay, then that, that, that token has a value, right? And the government would probably consider it a security if uh, somebody right. was operating uh, an asset. And so it'd have to be registered. And unfortunately, I don't like that. I wish there were no security laws. I, I don't agree yeah. with having an SEC and all these laws. It's, you know, I wish we didn't have them. Uh, but unfortunately, we do. But I mean, there are certain things I think could be tokenized where the tokens can have real value. But if I'm just gonna you know, paint a picture and say, hey, here's this picture, you could buy 
uh, a 1,000th of this digital image that I just created. I mean, what value is that? It's nothing. But yes, if people want to buy it, yeah, it, it can go up in price, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and wow. until somebody doesn't want to buy it anymore. And then somebody gets left holding the bag when it comes crashing in price. But you no, know, if if Logan Paul makes money doing this, everybody's going to want to do it. Every celebrity oh, is yeah. going to come out who has a social media present. Hey, here's my new uh, my new card. Uh, buy into it. But, you know, the government's going to have a field day when people because people are going to lose a lot of money. And then the government's going to come in after the fact with all kinds of new regulation. That's the problem. You know, whenever people lose money, the government seizes that as an opportunity uh, to have more regulation, which basically just sets people up for even greater losses in the future. Wow. So, you know, uh, one of my last questions that I have is Charlie Munger, <coughs> you know, famous student of uh, uh, Benjamin Graham and, uh, you know, associate obviously with Warren Buffett. Uh, Munger recently slammed Bitcoin and Tesla, uh, trying to figure out which one's more overvalued. Uh, and at the <laughs> same time, you've got a Buffett investing not in gold because he doesn't like investing in gold, but investing in miners. Can you talk to what's going on? What what what's going on with Charlie Munger? Is he right about Tesla Bitcoin? Is is, is Buffett right to be investing in miners? Can you talk to them a little bit? Well, first of all, them? Buffett made an investment. At least Berkshire Hathaway did in Barrick Gold. And then when the mm -hmm. investment became public, I think he yep. kind of was embarrassed by it and they ended up selling sure. the investment. Now, of course, you know, it's gone <laughs> down. So, it, you know, maybe they just did it as a trade uh, and I think they made mm -hmm. money. But that's that's not typically what Buffett does. He doesn't trade. He kind of yeah. buys and holds. So I think that, you know, his the, the perception that he was making a bet against America because he's so you know bullish on America. I think that uh, he ended up getting out of um, a barrack. Um, but ah. as far as, you know, uh, Buffett and Munger, look, they've been negative about Bitcoin from the beginning. And a lot of people mm -hmm. say, well, Buffett is negative on gold and Bitcoin. So, you know, what difference does it make? I mean, I think that Buffett understands what gold is. And if Buffett really believed that there was going to be massive inflation, he would want to own gold or silver. He would not want to own Bitcoin. I mean, I've read enough of his writing to know that he understands what inflation is. I've seen him describe inflation as a tax, uh, a tax by, on, you know, from central banks. And he knows that inflation is pr printing money. He just prefers to hedge against inflation by owning stocks, owning businesses. And that's a good way to hedge against normal inflation. But if you get really high inflation or hyperinflation, then you need something like gold. And I think Buffett would agree. Um, but as far as what's riskier or what's more overvalued, Tesla or Bitcoin, I think it's clear. I think Bitcoin has no value. I think Tesla has some value. I just don't know what it is. Right? I don't sure. think Tesla is worthless. I think that he has uh, some innovative products and he has a loyal customer base. And I, I don't think Tesla is going to go away. I think Tesla is going to own a share of the automobile market. I mean, it's possible that they go bankrupt one day and, and, and you know, I, I don't, you know, but I think it's more likely that Tesla finds a niche and, you know, it's there. And maybe one day it will be acquired by a larger company. I mean, obviously not now because it's so overpriced, but the, I don't know what the value is. It seems like if you look at the price of Tesla, the market says that one day Tesla is going to sell half the cars in the world. That's basically what you're betting that, you know, it's going to be as big as all the other automobile companies combined. 
and everybody's going to buy electric cars. I mean, because, you know, <laughs> and no one's going to buy, uh, you know, gas cars. We're all going to be electric and half those cars are going to be Teslas. I just find so that incredibly hard to believe that that's going to be the case. You know, you have mm -hmm. all these big automobile companies all over the world, you know, um, in Japan and Germany and, you know, in Korea, uh, in India, making cars. And they're all starting to make electric cars. Right. You know, now, are, what if some of them are better than Tesla's? What if they're cheaper than Tesla's? I mean, you know, just because, you know, Musk was, you know, really the first guy to really popularize it. Of course, those aren't the first electric cars. But mm -hmm. to say that he's going to maintain this dominance is, is ridiculous because no industry can remain, maintain that dominance. There's no history right. of it ever happening. You have a lot of competition and Musk's going to have competition and it's going to get more and more intense as the demand for electric vehicles grows. Um, so we'll see, I mean, what Tesla is really worth. But, you know, there were a lot of, you know, smart people who shorted Tesla a long time ago because they crunched the numbers and they were like, there's no way the company can be worth this much. And then it doubled and doubled again. And a lot of those people oh, were forced to, you know, just throw in the towel because they couldn't take the heat. Uh, meanwhile, everybody believes that the little guy, because it was, it was the big institutions, right? The smart guys that were shorting the stock. It was all the little investors who don't know anything about portfolio analysis, who don't know how to look at a balance sheet. They just saw Musk's a personality or they owned a Tesla right. and they liked it and they just started sure. buying. And then as the price was going up, they all thought they were geniuses and they bought more and then more people bought it. And you have everybody buying it. And now you have a lot of people trying to say that this is a case where the little guy was right and the big guy and the institutions were wrong. No, the little guy is wrong. They just don't know it yet. The institutions were right. They were just early. Now their timing was wrong. I obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, they shorted Tesla too soon. But ultimately, the price is going to crash. And the people who stayed short Tesla <laughs> are going to make money. But the people who stayed long and who continue to buy more shares at ever inflated plated prices, they're going to lose a lot of money. So you're saying I shouldn't buy Tesla tomorrow. Got it. <laughs> or Monday. <laughs> and, that, and that doesn't mean <laughs> so, it won't go up the day after. Yeah. But look, Tesla's yeah, yeah. now in a bear market, right? Tesla's down more than 20%. Uh, from its peak. So we're in a bear Buy market. The dip, man. <laughs> and, you know, it, we don't know how big the bear market's going to be. It could be a long bear market, could go on for years, the stock can go down 80, 90%, or it can be a short one and that Tesla can make new highs. I don't know. On, uh, on this, uh, this brings up uh, something weird that I think happened this last week. Biden and his administration have suggested that they <coughs> want to go EV. <coughs> They want electric vehicles and they want to, you know, electrify the entire fleet. Why do you think the government gave a contract for the Postal Service vehicles to Oshkosh, who's not committing to all EV? And they're saying, ah, oh, we're just going to do fuel efficient gas vehicles and maybe we'll do some battery electric vehicles. And Workhorse gets screwed because people thought, oh, well, here's an all EV company that that's going to get the contract. And they did. Why? Why would the government send such mixed signals? Is, is this just another example of the failure of government? Well, I'm sure there was a reason for that. I mean, maybe there were certain Price. political contributions that were made to certain candidates. Oh. I'm sure that the company found some way of bribing the government into getting that contract uh, because <laughs> nothing is fair and above board when it comes to government. Um, Ouch. But a part of That's the problem, dated. too, 
is that the Biden administration wants all of the electric vehicles to be manufactured in America. Uh, he wants the vehicles to have American parts, which guarantees that they're going to be far more expensive. So it's going to yeah. cost the U.S. taxpayer a lot more money to do this than it would have cost the taxpayer had they been able to shop around for the best bargain. That's not what the government right. is about. It's not about getting bargains. It's about dramatically overpaying. Uh, and so that's why you want the government to do as little as possible. It'd be better if we just privatize the post office and get the government out of the, the mail delivery business. I mean, right. there's no reason. I mean, we had a post office because it's actually in the Constitution. It's one of the few things that the government has the authority to do. But what it doesn't have the authority to do is maintain a postal monopoly and, and, and put people out of business who want to compete with the post office. They never should have been doing that, and they still do that. But I think given the, 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 the change in technology, there is no real reason that the government should be delivering the mail anymore. So I think the post office should be shut down uh, and the private sector should be able to come in and, and, and fill the void that would be left uh, in the post office and, and then let private industry uh, buy the electric vehicles to deliver the mail if that's what they want to do. But the, the government should be completely out of uh, the post office. I mean, you've got over 600,000 people that work for the USPS. Are you saying, sorry, shutting the doors? Does, does that carry any weight? Well, just be, look, they're working there. Again, what if there were 300,000 people digging ditches and 300,000 people filling them back up again? I mean, do we want to keep them employed in that capacity? I mean, I think that the Postal Service could probably fire 90% of those workers and still get the job done. So most of them are probably just, you know, in the way we don't need, we don't need them. Now, that doesn't mean those people would be idle. If they weren't working for government, they'd be free to do something else. And it's the something else that I want them to do. I want people employed productively. And if the government got out of the way and we had a free market economy, there'd be so many other employment opportunities because there is no limit. I mean, do you have all the things that you want? Personally, like, do I do I want more things? In other words, I mean, sure, I'd, yeah. I'd go get a job, and I'd, I'd I'd go I'd go. No, no, no. You know, but there there is human needs are unlimited. Sure. And so yeah, yeah. in a in a capitalist society, people want to make a profit, and so they try to satisfy human needs. But since needs mm -hmm. are unlimited, there is no end to the process. And since people <laughs> always want more stuff, there's always going to be jobs to help produce that stuff. The problem is when the government intervenes, uh, we don't use our labor resources efficiently. And so we're all poorer as a result. We want to utilize labor, which is a resource, as efficiently as possible, which means we want as few people employed by the government and as many people employed by the private sector. As I said earlier, in the Soviet Union, everybody had a government job, but nobody had any bread. Right? I don't want jobs. I want the bread and all kinds of other things that people that work in the private sector produce. That's a good line. Uh, okay, two final questions. Good, because I ran out of water. I don't know if Paul is listening. He can bring me another one because I'm sitting here and I guess I'm, I'm still trying to get over this cold and I I need, I need water. Yeah. Uh, SPACs, are you buying any? Well, you know, I have not uh, gotten in them. And, you know, my thinking is, and if you don't know what these special opportunity funds are, I mean, you're just buying a pig in a poke, right? You're just buying... You're giving someone a blank check. Hey, here's my money. Go out and buy something. Right, and right. the problem is they end up overpaying. 
They just look for something to shove into the SPAC. But right now, everybody wants to get in. Everybody and his brother's got a SPAC. And this is all part of the bubble. So what I think is going to happen is after all these SPACs crash, then you can kind of sift through the wreckage and figure out, hey, which one of these SPACs actually bought viable companies? And then you can buy buy them at that point, right? Thanks. He is watching. So, um, uh, <laughs> all right. Then I got one more here. Yeah. The talk <laughs> that Robinhood might go public in March. How, would you invest in Robinhood as a way to, to hedge? Well, first of all, I have to, I mean, probably not, but I mean, because I guess it's probably going to be way overpriced. I don't know if Robinhood actually has any earnings. My guess would be maybe not. Um, and I ha- I'm sure the the, va- the PE or the valuation that would you know have it would be enormous. I mean, IPOs are very different today than they used to be. I mean, if you go back you know to the 1970s, 1980s, or 1990s, the the, the whole point of going public was you had a business that was a success, and you could tell it was a success because it made a good profit. And you proved out that your business worked. But you just wanted to scale it up and say, hey, I've got this great little business. It's making all this money. But if I had more money, I could like scale this thing, right? Like, let's say I have one, I have a restaurant. Hmm. And maybe I opened up a dozen restaurants and they're killing it. Everybody loves these restaurants. I'm just, I got a, a whole new type of food and a serve. everybody loves them. And I'm like, you know what? I got 10. What if I had 100? What if I had a thousand, right? I mean, if I'm making so much money on these, so I was, how, but where am I going to get the money? I, I'm a small guy. I have 10 restaurants. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go public, right? So I'm going to take my proven business model, right? right? That's making all this money. And then I'm going to get more money from investors so I can grow my business, scale it up. And these investors will be able to participate in the growth, right? So you needed the money to expand a profitable business, right? And yeah. take it, take it, you know, you know, bigger nationally. You have a local business, you want to expand nationally. Here's how the IPO market is today. I raise a bunch of money from venture capitalists to yep. build out a business that doesn't make any money, but is already huge. It's already nationwide or it's global. Right. So I've got this business that loses money and the losses are financed by these venture capitalists. Right. And maybe I've been operating the the business for five or 10 years and I still haven't made a nickel in profits. But the business is huge. Right. It's got a multi billion dollar valuation. I haven't even gone public. (laughs) And then the IPO is basically the way the early investors cash out. They don't need the money. When these companies are going public, they don't need the money to expand the business. They've already maxed it out. They've got the revenue as as high as they're going to go. They're just looking for a payday. That's their exit strategy. So at now, when you buy into an IPO, you're the the potential bag holder that's letting all these guys who got in early get out. Meanwhile, they didn't even prove that the business model worked. You're buying it before it's ever even made a profit. So how do you know that it ever will make a profit if it didn't make one before you got in? So IPOs used to be a real good way for investors to get in on the ground floor of growing businesses that had already proven that they work, right? And now they're Mm. just going to try to 
you know, take it on the road and, you know, and see if it works bigger, right? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but at least you're betting on a proven commodity and you're hoping the management team can take it to the next level. And the money was used not as an exit strategy. All the new money that came in stayed in the corporate treasurers to grow the business. Now, when these companies go public, it's the VCs that are cashing out. They're just putting the sure. money in their pocket. So it's now just a casino. You're coming late to the party. You're overpaying. So most of these IPOs, you should just ignore them. And in fact, most of the IPOs have been done the last couple of years. Look at where they're trading. Even though they have a big pop on the first day and everybody's excited, when the dust settles, these things go down, right? And the only people that make money, maybe the people that are lucky enough to get them on the IPO because they've got a connection at the brokerage firm or they're a friend of family or something, and they got the stock and they sell it on the first day. And they, and they flip it and they get right out, right? So the, 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 the whole thing, Wall Street has completely corrupted the whole thing. But at the root of it is the Fed. It's all this cheap money. It's all this money printing. If the government hadn't corrupted the whole process, it would probably still be today the way it was in the past. Golly. Well, Peter, this was extremely insightful. How can people get in touch with you if they like what you're sharing or they want to learn more? Maybe they're skeptical. They want to learn more from you. What's the best way to do that? Well, certainly uh, listen to my own podcasts. I do two or three of them a week, uh, shiftradio.com uh, or on my YouTube channel, Shift Report. So do that. Follow me on social media. You know, I just went over 400,000 Twitter followers. A little help from Elon Musk. Uh, but um so I got, you know, <laughs> so I'm there, uh, YouTube, Instagram. I just recently started using that one. So it's just Peter Schiff on that Facebook. So, I mean, just follow me because I post interesting things, uh, you know, related to the economy and to the markets. Um, but for people who want to take it to another level that actually want to, uh, you know, incorporate my investment strategies into their own portfolio, they can uh, work with my firm. Uh, and, and work with me as an asset manager, money manager. I have five mutual funds that actually are available at most discount brokerage firms. Uh, you can't buy them on Robinhood because they don't have any uh, mutual funds. Uh, but, you know, Schwab, Fidelity, E-Trade, Ameritrade, I mean, TD, all these companies, you can go and look at the Europe Pacific funds. The website is here above my shoulder. You kind of can't see it now, but that's the website for my asset management company. There you go. Which is, yeah, for the mutual funds. So you can read up on my funds. You can actually buy the funds directly on that website if you don't already have a brokerage account set up. I think the minimum is $2,500 uh, per, per fund. But if you have larger sums of money, you want to work directly with me, we can have a separately managed account. I manage portfolios of individual stocks. I manage portfolios of my mutual funds and what I call a wrap account. Most people you know, won't talk to me directly. I have relationship managers, uh, brokers uh, that work for me. So if you contact my company by phone or by email, you're going to speak to somebody else who can help explain the strategies, help you figure out which is the best for you, if the strategies are even suitable uh, for your you know, risk tolerance or you know, where you are in life and, and what your goals are. But they'll do all that and help set up an account. But I end up managing it. I have a team of portfolio managers that live with me here in Puerto Rico. And it doesn't matter which one of my representatives, which live you know, all around the country, uh, and some of them live here in Puerto Rico, but whoever you're speaking with, we're managing the money. We're doing it from here. We're implementing these strategies, which are all designed to get out of the U.S. dollar, uh, to get out of harm's way, to not invest in the bubbles, but invest in real value in countries where the monetary and fiscal policy is not nearly 
as crazy as it is here. Uh, and so we have more viable economies. We're getting better deals on our companies. And we have a real hedge against inflation and a weak dollar. Why, why don't you create like an ETF, you know, the, the, the Schiff ETF or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I could do that too. I mean, I have mutual funds right now. Uh, but ETFs, yeah. I mean, ETFs are generally static. Uh, although I know some people have toyed around with uh, managed active. ETFs where, where they're active. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, I haven't done that. I mean, is it possible that I could do something like that in the future? I could. I mean, I've just been doing the, the mutual fund format. And uh, and so far, that's worked. But, yeah, it's not uh, outside the possibility that one day I may not I'm, I may launch some kind of active mm. uh, ETFs. I mean, there's plenty of passive ETFs be, out there. You have to be registered either way, right? With mutual fund or ETF or, or is there like another level? Well, of yeah, I have, well, it'd have to be registered with the SEC. But if I had an ETF, uh, you mm. could buy, you know, smaller increments at any brokerage firm. Right. Uh, right. you, if I had an ETF, you could buy it at Robinhood. Um, sure. but yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's, that's a business decision and I don't know, you know, maybe I'll move in that direction at some point. Uh, I know people have contacted me wanting to license my name or use it for ETFs. And, uh, thus far I haven't uh, taken anybody up on that. Uh, what's next? The Schiff hotel? <laughs> well, if I have a hotel, <laughs> I it. it's going to be a, it's going to be a real one, not a virtual one. Although I don't know, these, those are tough <laughs> businesses right now. Any, any, anything, anything that hotel restaurants and travel related, it's, it, those are tough businesses right now. I mean, the business that I'm doing, you know, is easy to do, uh, from your home. So, wow. As wow. In, you know, Peter, we haven't, we haven't been hurt by COVID. Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time. This, uh, this was, I can't believe I stayed on so long. It's been what? two Hey, hours you know what? Thank you. First of all. And I have to say, look, they're going to be, they're always going to be people who don't agree with your perspectives. Uh, but I think uh, it's always good to listen to different perspectives and, and, uh, uh, and, uh, see what, what a counter argument is. So thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks for giving me an opportunity to uh, converse uh, with your audience. I know you've got a pretty uh, good uh, following on YouTube. Congratulations on that. Um, and, you know, Paul, who brought me the water, you know, every time I go into his uh, his office, uh, he's got you on. So he's watching. He's watching a lot oh, of your content. Well, thanks, so. man. He's pretty particular, oh, too. It. So if he's watching your stuff, it's because it's good. So. Oh, I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I, you know, as as usual, anybody watching, don't sue me. Don't don't sue Peter. Always just sharing information here. Uh, thank you so much, Peter. Uh, I feel I feel better. I know you're you're overcoming. Uh, you're under the weather a little bit here, and uh, we'll see you again in the future. I hope the market doesn't crash. I, I hope uh, the dollar doesn't crash because I think there's going to be a lot of pain. But we got to keep an eye for it. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you know, pain now is better than pain later. I think is I think it'll be worse if it happens later. So peel off the band aid, yeah. get it over with, and let's start working on solutions instead of instead of delaying the solutions while we make the problems worse. Deal. Thank you so All much, right. Peter. We'll see you next time. Folks, if you've enjoyed this video, consider sharing it, and we will see you in the next one. Thank you. Cheers. Bye.